Before I get into the message this morning, who all here has, has uh, afforded themselves the opportunity to go to our prophetic rooms before church? How many people here have been blessed by the prophetic rooms? Come on. Um, yeah, I want to I let you guys know, uh, before, before church, uh, every Sunday morning, from 9.30 in the morning to about 10.20, we have a group of people who are, who are gifted and trained in prophetic ministry, and um, they meet in the little office uh, right next to my office, that prayer room kind of back there. And if you ever want to come in for prophetic ministry, you might be thinking, well, what the heck is prophetic ministry? Well, prophetic ministry is just, it's New Testament encouragement. It's, and it's not, just, it's not just regular encouragement, it's divine encouragement. And so we've got a, we've got a team who have just been trained in, in, uh, in a New Testament model of, of being able to encourage people prophetically. And so basically what will happen is they, you, know, you can go back, you don't have to have an appointment, first come, first serve, you go in the back, have a seat. The only thing they'll want to, the only thing they'll want to know is your name. And then they'll just pray, and they'll just begin to share some words with you, give you some pictures, some things that the Lord shows them. And it is remarkable some of the things that the Lord has spoken to people. Um, in fact, I've got a really good testimony that I could read to you guys. Is that all right? All right. Um, this, is, um, this is from a friend of ours. Um, I, I say a friend. It's, it's sort of a friend of, of some of the core here at the church. Um, they've become new friends to us. And her name is Cindy. And when Cindy came... Uh, she came about two months ago to the prophetic rooms, and she and her husband had never experienced any kind of ministry like this. They've never, they've never, they've never had like you know a, a personal prophetic ministry time, and uh, so she didn't know any of the people who were in the room, and none of the people who were just in that morning. There's usually three people. None of the three people knew her. So she came in. She says, "Hello, my name is Cindy," and then I'll read you the rest. Okay, everybody got that? She didn't know them. They didn't know her. All right, here's how it goes. She says, yeah, um, we were invited to experience the small town of Campbellsville in February this year. And after a weekend of spending some time with the Roberts family, they invited us to join them at the vineyard on Sunday. And we had dinner with Justin and Kendall the night before. And Justin had told us about the commencement of the prophetic ministry and asked if my husband and I would like to consider coming in a little early for prayer. So we did. And um, um, she, a little, another little note that doesn't matter. And then she says, I made my husband go in first while I waited outside. And within a few minutes, he came out looking for me and asked if I would join him as I really needed to hear what was being said. And as I sat down, the words that the team were speaking went right through my heart. I'd never received, from, I'd never received words from someone I didn't know before. And honestly, it was quite overwhelming. One word in particular was, was in regards to music and that music was going to change the mindsets of people. And then someone else had a vision of me spreading it out like a handful of mustard seeds being scattered. This was an undeniably strong confirmation of what had been stirring inside of me for some time, and I knew what I had to do. Not much testing had to be done on this word. We came home, and I began searching for someone to record the music that was bubbling up inside of me. Things continually fell into place, and I recorded 13 songs in four days, 10 of which I wrote within two weeks of returning from, from receiving prophetic ministry in Campbellsville. We visited the church on April 8th. We visited the church again on April 18th and came a little early for prophetic ministry. We sat in front of a new team. And they began, speaking, they began speaking to me, and one of the team members looked at me and said, Hey, I really feel like the Lord is getting ready to release something really significant in you. She says, Ha, I laughed. She's getting ready to release her album. So thank you, Jesus, for speaking to your people, and thanks for, thanks for the body who is, uh, who is willing to listen. So isn't that cool? So this woman comes. She sits in front of three people. They do not know her. She does not know them. And they begin to speak to her about the calling and destiny that Jesus has, had laid out for her from the beginning of time. 
And, um, and they began to prophesy an album that was already in her heart, but she had been, I'd talked to Cindy, but she had been too afraid to move into because she thought it was an unworthy use of her time. Come on. So how many of you would like to have some of that? 9.30 on Sunday morning. First come, first serve. Some of you might be thinking, wow, that's really strange. And at a certain level, yeah, it is kind of strange. But here's what I want to tell you. If you begin to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you begin to read Acts, if you, if you, if you give yourself a month and you read all the way through the epistles, what you're going to find out is that's not unnormal. That's, in, that's actually, from a New Testament worldview, that's actually very normal. It's very normal for people to encounter to encounter uh, the Holy Spirit. And it's very normal for the Holy Spirit to reveal the secrets of men's heart. In, in Daniel chapter 2, one of God's names is, he's the revealer of mysteries. Can I tell you something? He's not just the revealer of mysteries in Daniel chapter 2, 2,500 years ago. He's the revealer of mysteries today. See, the Lord doesn't change. And the way that he used to work is, generally speaking, the way he's working right now. The only thing that's changed is our perception and our expectation of what he can do. What I'm, what I'm trying to get at is we need a worldview change. So, yeah. One of the ways you can get a worldview change is just receive some prophetic ministry. It's fun. It's fun. If you want to this morning, um, I would like everybody here to uh, open up the scripture to John chapter 16. <clears throat> We're going to look at a few verses this morning. We're going to begin a new series here uh, for the next four weeks, leading right up to Pentecost Sunday. We're going, to, we're going to spend the next four weeks just welcoming the Holy Spirit, if that'd be okay. Uh, just, uh, just in the church calendar, we're in that, we're in that, fuzzy, we're in that fuzzy section between, between resurrection and Pentecost. And um, just so you know, after Jesus woke up from the grave, after he was resurrected, uh, he went out and he hung out with his disciples for 40 more days, and he taught them the finer points of the kingdom of God. Uh, that's not what we're going to talk about this morning, but, but I, I want to I I frame this for you. So we're in that, we're in that fuzzy pe- period of time between Resurrection Sunday and, and Pentecost Sunday. And, um, and so um, we're in that section of, of time right now where the Lord Jesus is sharing with his disciples the finer points of the kingdom of heaven. But what I want to do, I really feel like this is a, this is a chance for us to, um, to welcome the Holy Spirit. We, how many of you know that, that uh, when, you, when you go on vacation, like my, my wife and I, we have, a, we, have some, um, we have some family that live in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, it's my sister and my brother-in-law. And so when we, go, when we go to visit Eric and Amanda in North Carolina, we don't, we don't just show up, you know? No, we can just show up because she's my sister and he's my brother-in-law. But anytime, anytime we go to visit them in Charlotte, we usually plan it out. And we're already right now beginning to plan out our visit to Charlotte. We're going to go see them probably sometime in June or July, and we're going to go have a good time. We're going to take the kids to the water park. We're going to hang out with Uncle Eric and Aunt Amanda, and we're going to go eat good food, drink good wine, and enjoy good fellowship. But in the process of letting them have an advance notice, the reason we want to let them have an advance notice is because I know how my sister is, and she wants to prepare for our arrival. So what we're going to do for the next four weeks, we're going to prepare our hearts to receive the Holy Spirit in a more profound way. 
You know? Just like you would like to be received when you go and visit your sister on vacation, the Holy Spirit, he just wants to be welcomed and received. So one of the things that I've, I've known, I've been walking with the Lord for about 20 years, and one of the things I've known uh, or learned in, in walking with Jesus for the last 20 years is that the Lord really loves to be invited, and he loves to be received. He tends to go to places where he's invited. Anytime you read the Gospels, somebody invites Jesus over, you know what he always does? He always goes. They said, come to a wedding. Great. I'll go to the wedding. You know? Come to my house. My daughter is dead. Great. I will go with you. You know? It's one of the things... It, and I'm, being, I'm, I'm joking a little bit, but it's a powerful revelation of the nature of Jesus, and it's a powerful revelation of the nature of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tends to show up in places where he's invited and welcomed and sought after and hunger. When people have desire and hunger... He tends to land in those spots. And since we're going to spend the next few weeks just hopefully not, here's, the, here's what we're not going to do, okay? Let me just say this. We're not just going to have a biblical lesson on the Holy Spirit, okay? I, I am absolutely, positively uninterested in having a biblical study on the Holy Spirit. Some of you are like, dude, that's weird. Oh, let me tell you. I am uninterested in, in spending four weeks and having us simply gain more facts about the Holy Spirit apart from an experience of Him. Okay? So what are we going to do? We're going we're to spend four weeks just welcoming the Holy Spirit and posturing ourselves to have an encounter with the Holy Spirit. If after four weeks you are unable to theologically outline any significant part of who the Holy Spirit is, but you've encountered him, I don't care. That would suit me fine. Because a man with an experience trumps a man with an argument every single day. Come on. This is one of the things I've learned in the church is we are in, we are in desperate need of encounter. We're in desperate need of experience. And since we're going to spend a few weeks hopefully encountering the Holy Spirit, hopefully we're going to begin to encounter him even in a more dynamic way this morning. Um, I need to outline what that is just a little bit for some of us because when, when a person begins to talk about the Holy Spirit in church, uh, generally there are, there are certain mindsets and generally there are certain worldviews and stereotypes that kind of bubble up to the surface. You know, I, I, mentioned, I mentioned Holy Spirit and especially in a room this size, there's you know, a couple hundred people out here. You mentioned the Holy Spirit in a, couple, in a room full of uh, a couple hundred people, and, and one of the things that, that drops into a lot of people's minds is we get this, we get this concept of like hyper-Pentecostalism, like the ladies are all going to wear long dresses, grow their hair out, take their makeup off, and the men are going to grab snakes, right? <laughs> P-Ray just said, that's why I'm here. Yeah, um, yeah here's the deal. That's not necessarily what encountering the Holy Spirit is all about. Okay? Um, encountering the Holy Spirit is about encountering, encountering the action of God, if I can put it that way. Encountering the wind of God. Encountering the empowerment, the, the life-altering change of God to significant enough to produce in you Jesus' power and character. Okay? That's what encountering the Holy Spirit is about. He, some, the Holy Spirit will oftentimes use strange means to do that. But it's not about putting on a show. It's not about creating a hype factory. It's not about talking, in, talking someone into something. It's not about 
begging the Holy Spirit for anything, but it's about, it's about encountering the Spirit of God in a radical and real way sufficient enough to produce in me the power and character that Jesus lived in while he was here. Okay? Everybody okay with that? Let's read a little scripture. Uh, John 16. Um, let's look at uh, verse 5. We'll read like through 11. I don't even know if we'll get through all of this, but we'll do our best. We're going to put it up on the, on the screen, but if you have your Bible, turn there because you really need to see your own eyes, look at it on your own page. You need to know that it's, it's page 587 and it's on the upper right-hand corner because one day you're going to want to go back to it. So this is Jesus talking. This is, this is, he's, uh, he's about to be crucified and he's spending just the last few hours with his disciples before they go through some really tough stuff. And so Jesus says this. He says, <clears throat> Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you asks me, where are you going? Because I've said these things, you're filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I'm going away. Underline that. Isn't that a strange thing? It is for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment, in regard to sin because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness because I am going to the Father where you can, no longer, when you can see me no longer, in regard to judgment because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Father, I ask that you would help us this morning, that, you'd help us, that you would help us have an encounter with you, God. I ask that, that, a, that the, the, the Holy Spirit would lead us into all truth this morning. God, would you open up revelation this morning? God, would you save us from, from simply more Bible facts divorced from meeting the author? Thanks, Lord. Amen. Let's play a little game. Everybody want to play a game? Yeah. All right, I'm going to, um, I'm going to, it's a, it's a guessing game, okay? So I'm going to give you guys clues, and as soon as you can put the clues together to the right answer, you can just, you can just shout it out, okay? So I'm going to give you clues, and these clues are going to give you, uh, these, are, these clues are about a person. We're going to play a person guessing game. Can we do that? So I'll give you a few clues, and when you know the right answer, you just blurt it out, all right? All right, this person was originally born in Hawaii. This person is a smoker. Very good. Very good. Freaked me out the other day. I saw a picture of Barack Obama with a cigarette in his mouth. That's kind of awesome. I mean, I don't smoke. I can't smoke. I tried when I was in high school like three times and it about killed me. Then I tried two more times when I was in college and it about killed me. Then I tried one time when I turned 30 and it almost killed me for sure. I don't even think smoking is cool, but I just think it's awesome that we have this president who's just totally like got this thing that breaks the mold. It's so unpresidential. Yeah. So, so here it is. You guys have already ruined my little game. Barack Obama. Okay. Barack Obama is a smoker. He's originally from Hawaii. He graduated from Harvard Law School. He's the 44th president. He was born in 1961. He's a baller. He's got game. Y'all seen him shoot? 
our president's got game. And he's the first African-American president. Anybody else have some more facts about Barack Obama? Anybody else know his life history? See, here's the deal. What's the point? The point is this. We could actually talk all day long, and we could outline, and we could make a list. In fact, we could get, we could get my legal pad out, and with 200 people in the room, we could make a list of all the things that we know about Barack Obama, couldn't we? We could probably make a list of, I don't know, what do you think, five pages long? I bet, I bet in a room this size, with this many people, we could make a list of five pages long, full of facts about Barack Obama. Then we could copy the list of five pages full of facts about Barack Obama. We could disseminate that list to everyone. We could go home and we could study it every single night, just like River studies his spelling words. We could go home and we could read our five-page list of facts about Barack Obama for a week. Then we could come back and we could have a talk about the list. See where I'm going with this? After a week of studying the list of facts about Barack Obama, would we, in fact, know Barack Obama? No. Why? Because there's something, there's something about knowing that must be connected with direct contact and direct experience. And here's, here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid of, it. I'm afraid of, of, of this, this fact. I'm afraid that for most of us, that we, we, that we mistake facts for knowledge. I'm afraid that, especially in the church, we, we, we mistake facts for knowledge. You know, I, I, could, I could learn the list of five pages of, of facts about Barack Obama, but no one in here would be foolish enough to believe that I actually know Barack Obama. It's something completely different. Um, and, and let's be thankful for this, by the way, because we, we don't turn doctors loose like that, you know? Uh, my sister-in-law, she's been studying for the last four years to be a doctor. You know how many years in the classroom she spent? She spent nearly two years. You know how many years on the job she's going to spend before they turn her loose? Over four. What's the point? The point is, they don't turn you loose to be a doctor after you've read the book. In fact, they make sure that you're in the room doing the stuff with actual people in actual life and death situations for much longer than even studying the book, right? And, and aren't you glad? Yeah. Aren't you glad? Yeah. So would anybody here be willing to let me read the medical book and then practice on you? Even if, even if I knew all the facts perfectly, even if I could tell you exactly how to hold the scalpel, does anybody want me to read the book and, and perfectly be able to tell you how to hold the scalpel and then you be the first one? No. No. There, there's something about knowledge that must be married with experience. <clears throat> Here's the trouble for us, though. The trouble for us is this, that a lot of us in the church, we know the Holy Spirit in the same manner that we know Barack Obama. We know, we know a few Bible facts mixed with some rumor and some speculation, and then by the time we mix Bible facts with rumor and speculation, we've worked the math problem out to the point where we say, I know the Holy Spirit. And apart from encountering the Holy Spirit, there is no such thing as actually knowing the Holy Spirit. Here's the deal. Always in Scripture, knowing comes from experience. Knowing is always connected with experience in the Scripture. In Genesis, in, in, in Genesis early on, in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it said that Adam knew his wife. What kind of knowing did Adam know his wife? 
He knew her by intimate experience. Can I tell you something? Nobody gets pregnant from knowing facts. Let me say it a different way. Let me say it a different way. How many of you realize that that knowing a list of facts doesn't give birth to anything? If I can put it that way. See, knowing a list of facts doesn't get anyone pregnant. And knowing a list of facts doesn't give birth to anything. Knowing a list of facts mixed with some rumor and a little bit of suspicion doesn't produce fruitfulness in anyone when it comes to the Holy Spirit. The only thing... The only thing that counts for knowing in a biblical sense is always direct contact experience. Adam knew his wife, and he knew her by intimate contact. The Bible goes on to say, in, in Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. We, we have it up here every single Sunday morning. That's what the, you might ever wonder what these little pe- paintings are about right here. There's an apple on a hand with a bite out of it. It's taste and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Can I tell you something? You can't really know that the Lord is good until you've tasted. And once you've tasted, the tasting alters your perception and your knowledge of who the Lord is forever. Tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. See, the experience of tasting gives birth to revelation. It gives birth to the aha moment. It gives birth to to enlightenment. It gives birth to illumination. See, God is good. Here's the deal. Here's the other part I want, I want everybody in the room to be really connected with. I want you to realize that it's possible for me and for every single person in the room, it's possible for us to be able to recite the scripture, taste and see that the Lord is good, and never have tasted or really seen that he is good. It's possible to live, it's possible to live the illusion of knowing that he is good based upon knowing the scripture, being able to recite it, being able to write it down, having it posted in your bathroom, right above your toilet, on a doily. You can have it there, but apart from encountering the actual goodness of God, in car, in part, apart from tasting the actual goodness of God, you don't really even know how good he is. And the moment that you do taste that he's good, it changes your perception forever. Um, a lot of you guys know that that my wife and I were wine snobs. And if you didn't, you know now. Uh, we're, we're unashamed wine snobs. Um, I don't like cheap wine because cheap wine is nasty. And you know how I've learned this? I've learned it by tasting wine. You, you know how you learn good wine? You learn good wine by drinking lots of wine. And you learn good wine by that one day or that one evening. You're with your wife, you're with your with your family, you're sitting at the dinner table, and somebody opens up a bottle, and they, pu- and they pour it out, and everyone takes it, and they put it in their mouth, and the next thing you know, everyone's looking at each other and going, this is an amazing bottle of wine. You, see, here's the deal. I spent years trying to learn about wine, and I spent years trying to learn about wine by, by reading the magazines. I had those, you know, have you seen those giant Wine Spectre magazines? They're enormous. I read them from front to back. Guess how much it helped me? Almost none. See, I read the magazines, I, I, I subscribed to some online blogs where people talk about wine, and I read the blogs, and I listened to the blogs, and I heard people tell me what great, great wine was, but you never know what great wine is until it hits your mouth, and when it hits your mouth, you forever have a marker for what great wine is. See, tasting leads to knowing. Consequently, bad wine is a teacher as well. 
Consequently, bad wine is a teacher as well. And here's the deal. You know, everybody in the room, we've all drank the bitter wine of disappointment, you know? It's just built into life. But the real question I have for everybody in the room this morning, we've all drank the bitter wine of disappointment in life. But the real question this morning is, who would like to get a drink of the life-giving wine of the Holy Spirit? Come on. That's, that's the real question. Like, I've drank the bitter wine of disappointment in my life. I have drank the bitter wine of, of, of my own foolishness. I have drank the bitter wine of being harmed and abused. I've, I've had people treat me bad. I've treated people bad. It's led to all kinds of bad things. And that's true for everybody in the room. We've experienced that. But the, the real question this morning is, who would, like, who would like to have a drink of the life-giving wine of the Holy Spirit? Let's look at something that Jesus says here. Because it's so darn shocking. John chapter 16. Verse 7. Jesus says this. I tell you the truth. It's for your good that I'm going away. And unless you go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. What's Jesus saying? while I tie my shoe. If I can paraphrase the Lord for a moment, one of the things that Jesus is saying is he's saying to his disciples, he's saying, guys, you're better off without me. Isn't that what he's saying? Does that sound strange to anybody? Imagine this. Imagine that you've lived your life with the Lord for three and a half years. You have seen him heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, drive out demons. Preach good news to the poor. Imagine that you've seen him multiply bread. Imagine that you've seen him walk on water. Imagine that you've experienced life with him. And then the Lord tells you in his most serious voice and his most serious moment ever, he looks at you and goes, you know, guys, here's the deal. I'm going to leave, and the truth of the matter is, it's better off that I go because I'm going to send someone else. Now, here's the deal. This is is where everybody... uh, Everybody comes to at some point in their life. Everybody in the room, even today, we're at this moment where we get to choose. Do I believe that Jesus is telling me the truth here? Am I willing to take the risk that the Holy Spirit might be better? Am I willing to take the risk that the Holy Spirit might be better than whatever I've experienced up to this point? That's the thing the Lord's asking. Imagine yourself. Jesus is there, and when I hang out with Jesus, stuff's happening, and I have somebody whose who, who, who life is just around him. He's full of life, and now he's telling me that he's going to go away, and not only that, but it's better off that he goes away. And so the choice and the point that he brings all of his disciples to is, is this. Do I believe that his words are true for me even today? You see, the phrase, we're better off without him, it sounds strange, because we've grown up with a Sunday school approach to life where all the right answers end in Jesus. See, that's one of the reasons it sounds strange. We've grown up with a Sunday school approach to life, and especially a Sunday school approach, uh, approach to Christianity, and that approach ends 
with one right answer, and the right answer is always Jesus. Not only that, but, but we're better off without him. That, that sounds, for some of us, it's mildly offensive, and it's mildly offensive because we are so often completely unfamiliar with the person that Jesus left in his place. So we, we, we read this scripture and we go, man, that's a little bit offensive to me. And the reason that it's a little bit offensive, or it sounds a little strange on the ears, is because we are so completely unfamiliar with the person that Jesus left in his place. And so here's the deal, and here's what I want to get to this morning. It's, it's entirely possible for us to, to grow up in church, to know the stories, to have four or five pages of facts written down about who the Holy Spirit is, and for him to still be a stranger. And he, here's what I think. I think there's probably, there's probably a lot of us in the room, and, and, and this would be a true statement, that the Holy Spirit is a stranger to me. And you don't have to raise your hand, but I feel like there's probably just a lot of people here whose experience of who the Holy Spirit is, is that isn't one of intimacy or familiarity. So Jesus says, I tell you the truth, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I'll send him to you. And we're going to look at what the Holy Spirit does here, beginning in verse 8. Some of this we're very familiar with. Jesus says this, he says, When he comes, he'll convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. And so when the Spirit comes, uh, when the Spirit comes, he will oftentimes bring conviction. And, and most of us, I think, are familiar with that, right? Uh, most of us would probably have that as one of, our, one of our Bible facts that are on the list. One of the things that most of us in the room understand about the Holy Spirit is that when he shows up, a lot of times the activity of his presence among us brings about conviction, and it usually brings about conviction of sin. So um, let's all do that thing where we rewind the tape in our mind. Everybody go back to the day when you first submitted your life to Jesus and began to trust him. Everybody remember that day? Or remember that season where you began to to realize the lights kind of came on? Remember that season? Probably for every single one of us, one of the, one of the strong themes of that season was that, that you came into a time where the Holy Spirit's conviction came on your life and you realized, like, today, the lights came on and you realized, today, oh my goodness, I'm a sinner. Anybody, does anybody remember that day? I remember that day profoundly. I was 13 years old and I had grown up in church and I'd even grown up knowing the Lord, if I can say it that way. I'd even grown up being comfortable around the Lord. I liked to talk about the Lord. I, I was in love with the Lord. And I was 13 years old. And I remember our pastor, Paul Patton, he comes over to my house. I'm sitting, I'm at the kitchen table. My sister's there. My mom's cooking dinner. And the preacher comes over. And I don't even really know this guy. You know, I see him on Sunday morning. He wears his suit. He's a little bit formal. He freaks me out. He comes over to my house. He sits down. He opens up the Bible. He puts his finger right in, in Mark chapter 1. And when he put his finger in Mark chapter 1, the Holy Spirit fell on me, and in that moment, I realized, holy smokes, I'm a sinner. Anybody else have an experience similar to that? The lights come on. So this is one of the things that the Holy Spirit does. He, he, he brings conviction into our life. Another word for conviction is he convinces us, okay? And a lot of times, that word of conviction ends up being a dirty word, especially, especially in churches somewhat like the vineyard where we don't want to be religious, and we want to throw off the fetters that have bound us and kept us down, whatever that is. 
A lot of times, a lot of times, conviction becomes a word that we that we don't like. You know, it's like, man, I don't. Want to, you know. Here's the deal: conviction is a good thing. And one of the things we need to do is we need to realize that if we want to encounter the Holy Spirit more, we need to welcome conviction into my life. One of the prayers that we need to begin to pray, even regularly, is, Lord, Holy Spirit, bring your conviction. Convince me that your kingdom is better. Come on. You know what I'm saying? That's what conviction is. Conviction is being thoroughly convinced that Jesus' way and Jesus' kingdom is thoroughly and utterly better than the other way that I used to live. That's what it's all about. It's not about God is mad. And so, Damon, Damon, you're a really bad person. You talk bad. You don't, you don't do this. You don't read your Bible enough. You don't pray, Damon. And God is mad at you, you know? A lot of times, that's, that's the picture we have of conviction. It's that, it's that God sits on his chair, and he's ready to push the smite button. He's only, the only reason he doesn't push the smite button is, is because he's aiming the smite gun. And it takes him a while. And so before he pushes the button, he's got to aim his gun. You know, a lot of us have that picture and we, and we want to avoid conviction. Here's the thing. We need to embrace conviction because the extent to which we embrace conviction, we embrace the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And here's the, here's the real tragedy for a lot of us. Because we have a messed up view of what salvation is, we think salvation is coming down front, grabbing the preacher's hand, praying the prayer, getting dunked in water, and then going out and living like hell. Because we have that view of salvation, we think that conviction is a one-time event to, embrace, to be embraced one time. Wrong! We want to embrace conviction our entire lives. Holy Spirit, never let me get callous to you. David prays that in the scripture. He says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. It's Psalm 51. We want to embrace a lifestyle of of keeping my heart tender before the Lord so that I can feel his conviction toward me. Conviction is being convinced that his way is better. You You want to encounter the Holy Spirit more? Begin to pray this prayer. Lord, convict me. Convince me. God, I know that there are ways in my life that are offensive to you. Convince me. Here's the deal. You become aware of sin and you become aware of conviction not by coming aware, not by coming into contact with the anger and wrath of God, but you come into conviction and you come in and you come into being convinced when you come into contact with life. Okay? When you come into contact with the Holy Spirit, what you do is you came into contact with life. In Genesis chapter 1, it says that the earth was formless and void, but the Spirit of God hovered above the earth. Who was that? That was Holy Spirit. You know what he was doing? He was taking part in creation. You know why? Because he's full of life. And when you come into contact with the life of the Holy Spirit, suddenly the chaos and the confusion and the disorder in your own life becomes abundantly clear. Let me put it this way. Um, anybody ever been around a hog farm? Has anyone here ever, ever, lived, downwill, ever lived downwind of a hog farm? John has. John, you're really going to know what I'm talking about. It stinks. Yeah, there, there, is, there is no pungent odor on the earth quite like a hog farm. No, I never lived downwind of it, but I had a best friend who raised pigs when I was growing up. And so I would occasionally go spend the night with this, this friend, and then we would go and help his dad on the hog farm. And so we would wake up crazy early, and then we would go feed the pigs, you know. And I didn't grow up in a hog farm, you know. So when we opened up those doors to go in there, I'm like dying. I'm like, I'm this. 
you know, I'm carrying the bucket, and dude's like, you can't carry the, get another bucket. And I'm like, dude, this, this hand is for protection, and, and whatever you can get out of me with this hand is what I'm willing to give. See, here's the deal. Conviction, especially conviction about sin, is like living downwind of a hog farm, okay? You live downwind of a hog farm long enough, guess what? You don't even realize it stinks anymore. Like my friend, he, he lived at the hog farm. He didn't even realize that the hog farm was, in a, was an atrocious place. He didn't. But this is what happens. Holy Spirit comes in and he blows the breath of life across that. And when the fresh air of the Holy Spirit begins to consume your life, you go, oh my gosh, I've been living in a hog farm. This stinks. That's how conviction works. Yeah, after a while, we think that the way we live life, you know, whatever, whatever sin issue we have, we think that it's kind of like living downwind of a hog farm. We think that, well, this is just normal, you know, until, until the Holy Spirit comes in. When, when the Holy Spirit comes in, he brings life. But he doesn't just bring life. He brings heaven's perspective. And when heaven's perspective hits my sin issues, heaven's perfe- perspective comes up to my life, and after, after, it, after it encounters me, I'm able to see that what I was in before is utterly foolish. This is crazy. You know why it's utterly foolish? Because it's leading to death. It will kill you. So one of the ways that we can further encounter the Holy Spirit is to begin to invite conviction into our life. And the Spirit awakens us to life. So Jesus says, when the Holy Spirit comes, He's going to convict the world of guilt in regard to sin, righteousness, and judgment. In regard to sin, because men don't believe in me. And one of the things, one of the things that the Holy Spirit does, especially, the one, of the, one of the things He really likes to deal with, He likes to deal with unbelief. He really likes to deal with unbelief, especially as it relates to Jesus. When the Holy Spirit shows up, it's like, I'm a, I'm a sinner, and Jesus, you know, it all just kind of comes on. And it's, it's not something that someone can even be talked into. Here's the deal. There's a lot of evangelism models that, that, are, that are based upon argument. I hate evangelism models that are based upon argument. You know why? Because anything that a person can get argued into, they can get argued out of. They, what they need is they need the presence of the Holy Spirit to walk into the room. They need the lights to come on. We can argue, we can debate, we can, we can do all that. But apart, from, but apart from the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing behind it, dude will probably get talked out of it. We're all wasting our breath. Secondly, verse 10. He's going to convince the world in regard to righteousness, because I'm going to my Father, where you can no longer see me. And this is, this is just the goodness of God at work here, okay? So one of, the, one, of the first, one of the first ways that the Holy Spirit becomes present in our life is through, through, just through, through conviction, just, just showing us, putting, 
turning the lights on and showing us the utter foolishness that's just going on in our life. He turns the life on, we get a clear picture of it. But he doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't just convince us that we're sinners in need, but he convinces us that Jesus is the solution. He convinces, he convicts us of righteousness. This is what, this is what the, that, that Jesus says. He says, in regard to sin, because men do not believe in me, in regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father. See, here's the deal. When Jesus got crucified, you realize there were Roman soldiers, they drove the nails, they put him on the cross, they hung it up, they put a, a, a sarcastic mocking sign above him, and, and, and then what happens? The earth shakes, the clouds get dark, it's, it's, you know, it's three in the afternoon, but heck, all of a sudden it's gone completely black, they have an earthquake, um, in one of the Gospels it says that holy people got resurrected, I mean like crazy stuff happens, the temple, the veil tore in two, and after Jesus is dead, what did the centurions who hammered the nails through his hand say? Holy smokes, I think that was God's son. Here's the deal. Imagine you're that dude. Bad day. Like, like you think you got regret in your life? You have no idea. Epic fail. Epic fail. I mean, epic. That guy, I mean, come on. He was like, it's like, he's the dude who's like, yeah, just be still, you know? Put him up. Where's the sign? I mean, didn't someone, dang it. Maximus, you always forget the sign. Put the sign up. Hang him up. Dude, it looks like a storm's rolling in. You know, earthquake. Holy smokes, I think we got this thing wrong. Yeah, it's part of the work of the Holy Spirit is to convince us that Jesus is God's solution. And this is, I want you to see this, that the work of the Holy Spirit is so full of the goodness of God. He's not the kind of God who would merely convince you that you're a sinner in need without providing for you the, the revelation on what the solution is. Okay? Like, here's the deal. This, you know that the Holy Spirit is working in your life when conviction isn't full of hopelessness. Okay? Here's the deal. I want, I want to outline this for you because this is really important. One of the ways you can know the Lord is dealing with you, you can know the Lord is dealing with you if it's conviction-oriented, Conviction always has hope that things can change and it always has hope that there's a solution and the solution is present and it's evident and there's a path, always. Condemnation is the exact same revelation without any revelation of of hope for anything can change. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the difference. When the Holy Spirit shows up to convict, He never leaves you convicted alone. He never convinces you of epic fail alone. He always provides a way out, and He always provides strength. And there's always, always, always hope that things can change and that you can be different and that there's a path available for you in the moment. I just, no, y'all need to write that down, okay? Because some of you guys, me too, but some of y'all especially... You go home at night, everything's cool. You know, you watch the TV, you see who, who's singing on American Idol really bad this year, and then you, get, you watch it the next night and you see who gets kicked off, and then everything's cool. But then you go to bed, and at night, the voices start, you know? And it's the voice of the accuser. And some of you are confused, thinking that's the Lord. It ain't, I mean, if there's no hope, it's not the Lord. But if there's hope, it's the Lord. And you need to invite Him into your life. How do we encounter the Holy Spirit in a greater measure? We, we encounter the Holy Spirit in a greater measure by inviting the convincing power of the Holy Spirit into our life and by looking for hope. He always provides hope. 
He convinces the world of righteousness. And when Jesus says, in regard to righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer, what Jesus is saying, he's saying, he's saying to this, he's saying, world, he's saying, disciples, I am completely righteous. I have completely, 100%, I am going to satisfy the wrath of God. I, have, I, have, I, have, I am on my way to fulfilling my destiny, and I'm going to go to the Father. And when I go to the Father, I'm going to sit down on the throne. And the reason I'm going to sit down on the throne is because it's done. I'm, it, there is nothing, there is no other answer. I sit down, I rule, I reign. And he's going to convince the world of Jesus' leadership. So conviction, conviction that the Holy Spirit brings is an awareness of our need and, and it's an awareness that Jesus is the answer. And he is thoroughly available to us. Last thing. Verse 11. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now now stands condemned. That's another word we get all freaked out about, right? Judgment. It's like, God's angry, he's ready to push the smite button, he's just aiming the cannon, right? Anytime we read that word judgment in the Bible, we're like, oh, done. This is the third leg of of some of what the Holy Spirit intends to do with us, is that he intends to convince the world that the devil has been utterly judged, that he's found out to be a phony, a liar and a deceiver, and that he's utterly inferior to God's kingdom. Jesus tells his disciples, he says, Holy Spirit's going to come, he's going to convict the world of sin, he's going he's to convince the world of my righteousness, and, he's, and, and in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned, he's saying, the Holy Spirit is going to come, and he is going to, he is going to convince the world that Jesus' life and that Jesus' death that his burial and his resurrection have all been a demonstration that the kingdom of heaven is a superior kingdom to the kingdoms of this world. And that the prince of this world is utterly, 100% dethroned. One of the ways that you can read the Gospels, you can, re- you can sit down on Monday and you can start reading through the Gospels and you could get through them in a week if you wanted to. It wouldn't take that much effort, maybe about an hour a day. But you could read the Gospels and one of the ways that you can read the Gospels is like this. You can read the Gospels as Jesus dethroning the princes of this world one by one. What does Jesus do when he's out and about? Preaches good news to the poor and heals the sick. When he heals the sick, what's what's he proving? He's proving that, that sickness and death is not a superior reality in the kingdom of heaven. And so the prince of this world is what? Defeated. Jesus would just be preaching and, and people with demons will stand up and go, ah, you know, be quiet. <laughs> that was kind of weird. <laughs> but Jesus would say, dude, shut up, sit down, come out of that guy. Demon leaves. When Jesus frees someone of demonic oppression, what's, what's the message? The message is that the kingdom of heaven is superior, and that the prince of heaven has come and his authority 
rules and the prince of this world is utterly dethroned. He's gonna, he, when the Holy Spirit is around us, he's going to convince the world that Satan has been judged. He's been weighed and found wanting. As a side note, one of my, one of my life's dreams, this is going to sound really strange to some of you all, one of my life's dreams is to be preaching and have people, people with demons manifest. Some of you are like, man, that's really strange, Adam. That's even a little bit scary. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just saying, if it ever happens here, don't y'all get afraid. And don't y'all be nervous, because I won't be. All right? I'm just saying, come on, let's get people free. So the Spirit is going to con- convict the world of sin. He's going to convince the world of righteousness, and he's going to convince the world that the devil, that the prince of the earth, has been found out to be a phony, he's a deceiver, and he's utterly inferior to Jesus and God's kingdom. Now here's the thing I want us to consider. Because the Spirit is going to convince, one of his jobs is to convince the world that Jesus is kingdom, and that his authority and that his ruling is a better kind of kingdom, and is a better kind of authority, and is a better kind of rule. I want us to consider the means by which Jesus demonstrated that reality. Okay? We've already talked about it. He demonstrated it. He demonstrated it by acts of power. And Bobby, if we can put up Acts 10.38, this is just like our, one of our life verses around here. This is, this is the manner in which Jesus demonstrated the superiority of the kingdom of heaven. This is Peter's message to to some dudes at Cornelius' house. He says, And how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. And I want, you to, I want you to underline that word anointed. I want you to underline that word Holy Spirit. And I want you to underline that word power. And how he went around doing good and healing all those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Man, if that's not in the gospel, I don't know what is. There's the gospel right there. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power and how he went around doing good and healing all of those who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. See, here's the deal. Jesus did what he did because he was anointed with the Holy Spirit, because he was smeared. That word anointed, it means smeared. It means somebody dumped the oil on him and smeared it all over him, and it was an exterior reality that went with him everywhere he was. Up, everywhere he was. And to be anointed with the Holy Spirit isn't just to be anointed with, with, um, with an invisible convicting force. It's, it's not like... It's not, like, um, it's not like Star Wars. You know, Jesus didn't come up and start preaching and give him one of these. To be, to be anointed with the Spirit is to be anointed with power, okay? And you can look through all the scriptures, and anytime you see Holy Spirit anointing, you're always going to see power really close because they go hand in hand. And look, to be anointed with the Holy Spirit and to be anointed with power, the demonstration that flows out of that is what? It's good things. It's healing all those who are under the power of the devil. What is it? It's, it's John chapter 16, verse 11. That when the Spirit comes, he wants to convince the world that Jesus is a superior ruler and that his kingdom is a superior kingdom and he wants to do it by demonstrations of power.
Yeah, the Spirit has come to convince the world that Jesus is the King, the ruling, superior, and better King. And if this was done by acts of power with Jesus, by what means would the Spirit like to communicate this reality now? That's the real question. Like, like if the Spirit wanted to communicate that Jesus was a better King and that His kingdom was a superior kingdom, by what means would the Spirit like to communicate to that? Communicate that to us this morning and today. Here's a question for everyone in the room. How many, how many people here realize that Jesus is no longer on the planet? That was an epiphany. It only occurred to me about four years ago. You think I'm laughing? You think I'm joking? No, for real. I only realized about four years ago, Jesus ain't on the planet. Who is on the planet? Holy Spirit. Yeah. And by what means would the Holy Spirit like to convince the world that Jesus' kingdom is a better kingdom in this day? I'd like to suggest to everyone in the room that the Holy Spirit would like to put, that he would like to smear the anointing of his presence on every single person in the room and he would like to smear the anointing of his power on every single person in the room so that you could become a demonstration, a living, walking, breathing demonstration that Jesus' kingdom is a superior kingdom now. Just look at my life. That's one of the, that's one of the things, that's, the, that's part of the high calling that the Holy Spirit's putting out to us, even right now, is, is he's putting out to his people. He's wanting to say, I want to anoint you with my spirit. I, I, want to, I want to smear you with my anointing. I want to smear you with my power. And the reason that I want to do that is I want you to be a walking, talking, breathing testimony that the kingdom of heaven is a superior kingdom and all they have to do is look at you. That's incredibly challenging for some of us because some of us are really stuck inside of a theology that says, well, I'm just a miserable sinner and the only thing I'll ever be is a miserable sinner. Baloney. I mean, you can be that if you want to. But it's certainly not, it's certainly not the call that Jesus has put out. You realize that Jesus took uneducated fishermen, he trained them in his ways, he gave them his spirit, and after he left, they changed the entire planet. These guys had less education than anyone in here who's even graduated from eighth grade. These guys had less job skills than anyone in here who's even worked at McDonald's. These were completely unimpressive men, except they had encountered Jesus, and by encountering Jesus, he had led them into an encounter with the Holy Spirit, and he left them with his presence. And in doing so, these these 12 guys, after you get rid of Judas and you, and you add the other one, these 12 guys end up changing the planet. Why? Because the Holy Spirit rests upon them. What's the means that the Lord would like to convince the world that his kingdom is superior now? It's the same means that he's always used. Put Holy Spirit on someone and let Holy Spirit rest, resting upon an individual be, uh, be the argument that settles all arguments. So back to our original question. How is it better that Jesus is gone? Well, it's better in a couple ways. Number one, we have Holy Spirit. And if Jesus, when Jesus was here, it was, he was one man in one spot at one time. You know? When Jesus was on the planet, he was bound by space and time. He was one man, one spot, one guy. 
And, and you realize there was even, there was even a, at a certain level, even though Jesus walked powerfully in the supernatural, there was a certain limit to how many people Jesus could see and to, to how much Jesus could carry in a given amount of time. Even the Lord, right? Jesus ascends. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father. sends Holy Spirit. And in doing so, he's got thousands of followers filled with the same kind of spirit that rested upon him. So we've just seen multiplication. Now the real question this morning is, has there been a multiplication of expectation that I would do the same kind of things that Jesus did? That's the real question. You know, what is, what is, what is salvation to me? What is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit just the guy who lets me know that I'm bad and I need Jesus? Or is it that the Holy Spirit wants to convince me that God's ways are better that he is, and, and that Jesus is the solution? And is it the Holy Spirit who wants to empower me to live a completely different kind of life with regard to character and with regard to power? That's the real question this morning. So the last thing I want to, I want to get to this morning is this. Do I know the Holy Spirit in this way? That's the thing that everybody in the, in the room needs to ask themselves. Do I know the Holy Spirit in this way? Do I know the Holy Spirit in the kind of way where I would be used to demonstrate the superiority of the kingdom? Have I, have I, experienced, have I experienced the supernatural inbreaking of the kingdom? Have I experienced the supernatural presence of the Holy Spirit in my life to the point that I have, that, that, that everything that's inferior has been subdued in me. So here's the deal. Is, is, Satan, is Satan's kingdom, is it condemned for judgment only in the Bible, or is it condemned for judgment today? And if so, how would the world know? If so, how would the world know? How would the world know apart from Jesus' followers being empowered by the same Spirit? How would the world know apart from Jesus' followers having the same kind of intimate contact and fellowship with the Holy Spirit that he had? How would the world, how would the world know apart from us moving in the same kind of lifestyle that Jesus moved in? So is it all locked in the book, or is it for today? That's what we're going to get to. If you're on the ministry team this morning, I'd like you to come on up.